Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And this time we're going with history as a weapon. And this is another example of somebody reaching out to me on the socials and saying, hey, I've got an idea. In fact, the idea evolved from a ridiculous trailer for a movie that you guys will never actually see. I'm not even going to go into it because the question was, is it historically accurate? And I went, this is wrong on so many different levels and not even in the sense of this looks like a fun movie it just looks like a really cheap movie but anyway this is Teresa hello Teresa she is a incredibly dedicated follower of mine she's been following me for many many years on the socials and also has bought a number of my books and throws out various ideas to me so once again thank you so much madam so History is a weapon. What on earth does this mean? And actually, this is an example of something that has drifted in and out of various episodes over the years. And I will start with a basic premise that I said during an interview I had on a different podcast. Writers on film, if you're the sort of person who likes cinema and you want something a bit more in-depth than just here are the latest reviews or is it's Rotten Tomatoes score, something like that. The actual writers of books about people like Martin Scorsese or about a specific movie like Casablanca, etc. That's what he covers. He himself is a film critic. He is a writer himself. And I've followed him for years. He's a great guy. Had a great fun having that conversation. And it was to do with my book, Hollywood and History, which looks at how films portray actual history and again in that book i also say that history can sometimes be used as a weapon or at least a tool for people but the example i gave in the interview is this i would hope that you would agree in general over the last 150 years there has been a specific not always constant sporadic at times movement to more inclusive politics and society. Things like 150 years ago, there wasn't a lot of civil rights in America. Women weren't able to vote. And things like that. You would be in Britain, you would literally be put into prison for being gay. And yet, fast-forwarding, 
I can say in Britain, the civil rights is a different story. It's actually a very American story because it's so widely portrayed by Hollywood. We tend to think it's the same story in every country. It isn't. But clearly in America, they've had the civil rights movement and it's improved the political situation for African-Americans. That certainly does not mean that everything has been sorted, but we since in the last 150 years now have had a black president of the United States of America. Women have not only had the rights to vote, but multiple different countries have literally had the national leader as a woman. And in the case of gay rights in Britain, well, now you can literally get married under the law as a gay man, gay woman, etc. So all of these things are positives. I would really hope that you would agree with that. People being able to express their own opinions and lifestyles has improved over the last 150 years. Except that's moving forwards, and the moment you talk about history, you start moving backwards. Go back about 200 years, and virtually everywhere on planet Earth had slavery. So as an example of that, we tend to, when people talk about slavery, it tends to be the transatlantic slave trade, which was terrible and horrible and awful and ran for 250 years, give or take. And that has been done to death. I am not the person to tell you that, except to say it was awful and I'm in no way denying it. What people tend to forget, though, is slavery has existed in every culture and civilization. From the Aztecs to the Zulus, they all had slaves. Perhaps the only controversial thing that Jesus said throughout his entire mission in the whole of the New Testament, you can't really argue with turn the other cheek and do unto others as you would have do unto yourself. So all of those things are pretty good. But the one thing that hasn't aged particularly well is slaves obey your masters. Now that was kept in for so long in the Bible because slavery just existed everywhere. It's worth remembering, it's not a specific one ethnicity on another ethnicity crime. The Vikings, when they raided France and England, they took white slaves with them back to Scandinavia. The Ottoman Empire was built on slavery. A lot of white slaves. Every single sultan of the Ottoman Empire, their mother, was somebody from the harem, and that would have been a previously Christian, now converted to Islam, slave girl. So these emperors of a mighty empire were all the sons of slaves. Very counterintuitive in the 21st century to say that. But what it means is, and what I'm getting at here, is if you use 21st century morals on somebody from 200, 300, 1,000 years ago, they're not going to stack up very well. And therefore, any historian worth their salt accepts that we have to look at these people from the morality of the time and judge them accordingly. To give you an idea, look at Oliver Cromwell. In the 1600s, there was the English Civil Wars. It's also known as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. It's called lots of different things, but I'm just going to call it the English Civil War because it's the one that most people would have at least heard of. King Charles I versus the Parliamentarians. Oliver was one of the generals. He was not the leader of the Parliamentarians, although he came to power afterwards. And in the end, it was Charles I who had his head cut off. He was executed. He was the first British monarch to have been executed for a very long time. And so with that in mind, that shocked 
the rest of Europe. All the other crown courts of Europe were horrified at the quote-unquote barbarity of these English republicans. So with that in mind, we can say that Oliver was very controversial during his own times. That's just one example. I know there's the whole thing in Ireland. I don't have time to go into it. But it's an example where we can say that this was bad even for the times. But what you tend to get, I'll give you another example when it comes to military terms in the modern world. The Geneva Convention and The Hague are the two centres that talk about things like war crimes. And it is now, in the modern world, in the 21st century, a siege is considered a war crime. Why? Because it disproportionately affects a civilian population, rather than the forces that are within the fortification, city, whatever. Now, that has led to some annoying people on the internet to refer to pretty much any general of the past a siege, by the way, is a pretty standard military strategy to take a stronghold or a walled town or city. But anybody who's committed a siege using modern interpretation of laws are now war criminals. But that isn't very helpful. It means Napoleon. It means Suleiman the Magnificent. It means Julius Caesar. It means the Duke of Wellington, and so on and so forth. All these people are war criminals purely because they carried out a standard, acceptable, internationally used system of siege warfare to crack a castle, a fort, whatever. But that is obviously the wrong way to look at it. What it does do is remind you that when we read about these battles from, let's say, a thousand years ago, it's very interesting to see these conquerors as almost neutral characters. Whereas, of course, if you're on the sharp end of their invasion, it would have been horrible. But the way that history is being used now is something that I'm worried about. And I've been saving this up for some time because I may end up offending a few people with my views on this. And my intent to anybody listening to this is not to offend. I'm looking at this from the perspective of a historian. And an example of somebody that seems to be losing the war against history as a weapon is Winston Churchill. We shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny. Now, if you want to argue that Winston Churchill was an imperialist. Winston Churchill was interested in eugenics, in racist ideology. I can't argue with that. But also, if you want to turn around and say he was the leader that Britain needed in World War II and helped galvanize Allied resolve against expansionist Axis forces, can't argue with that either. It's almost like he's a human being, and he was a man of his time, and it's complicated. And that's probably going to be the answer that you're going to get every time from an actual historian. Because do you know what? You know what your life is. There are very few 100% good people, 100% bad people. 
sometimes really good friends of yours make mistakes and might have hurt your feelings or made your situation in life worse. It was never their intention, but that was their outcome. And that's the situation with Churchill. So, for example, one of the things that has become increasingly common as a criticism to Churchill is the Bengal famine. This all came from one book from somebody who was very much anti-imperial Britain. And okay, I, I get why you want to be anti-imperial. That's not a hill I'm willing to die on, if you like. But here's the thing. If you actually look into what happened, you can suddenly tell that this historian had a grudge. Because the story that's now gone round the internet 400 times is not actually what happened. If you don't know, the Bengal famine was a failure of crops in the region of India called Bengal, and at least one million, maybe as many as three million people died as a result of this. And Churchill, according to this book, and according to things you might have seen on the internet, did nothing. Now, first of all, there is something worth pointing out. 1943, Britain is in the middle of World War II and isn't winning. So with that in mind, if you want to argue that Churchill, who was not in charge of the whole British Empire, you would expect the Raj in India to be worrying about Indian affairs. Fair enough. And secondly, Britain itself had lots of critical problems in 1943. And also in 1943, Japan is at its peak of ascendancy. And whereas people talk about the Japanese Navy largely in the Pacific and the understanding of the Japanese campaign or the campaign against Imperial Japan is largely the island hobby of the US Navy and Air Force and the Marines. And you also get the fighting by the British in Burma, modern day Myanmar. Yes, all those things actually happened. But people don't realize that the Japanese Navy had a lot of submarines. Indeed, they had the world's only submarine aircraft carriers, which unfortunately don't work the way you want them to, which is, you can imagine, it's something like sci-fi where they're submerged, they open up an airlock, and an airplane flies out of the water up into the sky. Yeah, that's impossible. Instead, what they did is they were able to... These are some of the largest submarines of World War II. They were able to actually carry several seaplanes in a sealed airtight container, they would surface, they'd then have to bring out the airplanes with their floats and attach the wings, and then they could fly off and then land, detach the wings and put them back in for storage. So that's pretty cumbersome. But anyway, the point is, they were operating in the Bay of Bengal, you know, where the Bengal famine was happening, and they were sinking Allied shipping. So, first of all, Churchill did find out about it, and the first thing he suggested was to be shipping grain from Iraq to Bengal. This is all on record. It didn't work out. However, he then said to try and risk taking shipping into the Bay of Bengal, despite the threat from submarines, to again try and get famine relief there. Now, as a matter of record, as I said, more than a million people actually died. But Churchill did not not care. He did care. He tried to come up with several ways to solve the problem. The failure of the crops was not the problem of the British government. They didn't make the crops fail. They didn't steal all the grain from the locals. 
but this has been deliberately misremembered and because it plays into the narrative of all imperialism is bad it's surviving longer than the rather dry rather boring explanation about grain exports from iraq which doesn't catch the imagination of imperialists want to kill people of color that plays well but that isn't what actually happened the other thing if we're going to continue on india is there is this assumption that racism is a white thing it really isn't in the case of modern day india the most famous thing in india when i say think of a structure that you associate with india almost everybody is going to say taj mahal now if you're not all up on the history of the taj mahal it's shah jahan's mausoleum to his wife but he was a Mughal emperor. Mughal is the local name for Mongols, and he wasn't actually a Mongol. He was kind of descended from Genghis Khan's family, and also, critically, the Mughals were also descended from the man called Emir Timur, better known as Tamerlane. Muslim, Eurasian, steppe nomads, think guys on horses firing composite bows that's exactly the same thing with the mongols exactly the same things with timur and his timurids which then turned into the mughals and then they conquered a large amount of india and so the taj mahal was built as an islamic symbol to love an incredibly important thing in islamic architecture and if you know this and if you look closely at images of the front of the taj mahal it's covered in arabic calligraphy that is not sanskrit or hindi or anything like that and indeed it is excerpts it's verses of the quran because that's what you would do for a religious mausoleum if you are muslim so the taj mahal built in the renaissance era is recorded by lots of different sources and the results are there for you to see i have visited the taj mahal it is truly epic and spectacular but that doesn't play very well to the hindu nationalists running india where since partition india's basic angle was if there's one thing worse than the british it might well be the muslims don't believe me gandhi the guy that everybody loves because he obviously was non-violent and he did an amazing job standing up to the british empire and he is somebody to be admired but he himself said some pretty anti-muslim things he was convinced for example that the muslims were going to kill him in the end it turned out to be a super nationalist hindu who killed him anyway that's a different story but the point is this everything i've just said is something that you might be vaguely aware of about the taj mahal but that's pretty embarrassing for the hindu nationalists of modi so there is now a movement and indeed it is now starting to be put in the school textbooks of india that it was built on a hindu site and that therefore makes the taj mahal actually hindu and there are some sealed off rooms which some people want to get into because they're convinced it has hindu icons of some of the gods in there it wouldn't it doesn't and if they do find any they've been planted there so yeah this is the thing this is an example of history as a weapon talking about the multicultural multi-ethnic past of your country is kind of uncomfortable for some nations 
And actually, most nations have multi-ethnic groups. So this is an example where India is, in essence, by the government, using history as a weapon to erase any non-Hindu story about the past and how awesome India actually is. Now, India is awesome. Hinduism is a world religion that has been around longer than written Judaism and certainly Christianity and Islam. It's something to be incredibly proud of. It's also worth pointing out that Buddhism started in Siddhartha, the Buddha, was an Indian prince. So there are many things for India to be proud of. They don't need to start making stuff up, but that's exactly what they're doing. And that's not helpful. So let's go to America now, shall we? And let's talk about the 1968 movie, The Green Berets. Again, this is something I go into quite a lot of depth in my book, Hollywood and History. But as I was researching it, it made me realize something again as history as a weapon. What I mean by that, if you don't know what the Green Berets is, as I said, it's a John Wayne movie. Successful mission, Mike. Yeah, but very costly. It was a movie about the Vietnam War made, as you can tell from coming out in 1968, during the Vietnam War. And to the modern eye, it's pretty much unwatchable. It is history as a weapon. Now, initially, John Wayne, a Republican, somebody very proud of his country, a patriot, he did actually take a trip to Vietnam, and he met some of the armed forces, special forces, so things like Delta Force. And he was incredibly impressed with their bravery and their tactical ability, and he wanted to make a movie principally about the special forces fighting in Vietnam, but it very quickly morphed into look at how awesome America is in Vietnam. Now, again, there can be little doubt saying that actually the Americans were the bad guys. When the movie was being made, the US armed forces realized they had John Wayne. He's an icon and a hero to the country. And he was going to give Vietnam a positive spin. So he was given anything he wanted to make the film. So for example, when he's... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On a military base, that's an actual military base. And those soldiers in the background, those are actual recruits who are going to be sent to Vietnam. Indeed, at one point, he ad-libs and he waves to some of them, and they wave back at him. And those people were not paid extras. So those men might well have died in Vietnam. It was filmed in the state of Georgia, not the country, and they obviously had to build a little Vietnamese village for some of the scenes. And it was in a jungly area of Georgia, and the scenes are pretty good. But... Because it was such an accurate reproduction of a typical Vietnamese village, it wasn't torn down at the end of the movie. Instead, it was used by the US military training purposes for new recruits before they went to Vietnam. So you've actually got a movie that is in some ways intertwined with the events that it's portraying. And if you want to talk about historical accuracy... All of the equipment is 100% accurate because it was literally the stuff they were using in Vietnam and they gave John Wayne and the makers of the film complete access to anything they wanted, be it the camouflage, be it the M16 rifles, be it the Spectre gunship, etc. All these things 100% accurate. It could be, in terms of kit, the most historically accurate movie ever made. Maybe. But... Why am I saying all of these things in a sort of negative way? And the answer is because it was a big jingoistic mess of a movie. John Wayne is way too old by this stage to have ever been involved in any kind of frontline combat. But there he is and the Vietnamese are commies and they're the baddiest bad guys you've ever seen badding. And the Americans are the most heroic heroes of Herodville. You get the idea. And therefore, knowing what happened in Vietnam, it leaves anybody who watches it with a really bad taste in their mouth. When it came out, and it came out in 68, just after the Tet Offensive, where it looked like America was going to start losing this war, it did okay at the box office. It certainly wasn't one of Wayne's big hits. It made its money back. But here's the thing. I'm saying all this stuff like it's bad, because it is bad. And while we may critique Hollywood, or Britain, or other Western European countries when they make movies about their past, yes, sometimes it could be a bit patriotic, but more often than not, it's pretty critical. It's showing the flaws, the cruelty, the impact on the civilians, the sign of a healthy democracy is we're willing to show the warts and all aspect of our historical past. But, going back to India, 
going back to places like Russia or China or Iran. These countries, 60 years after the Green Berets, well, let's call it 55, these countries are still making the Green Berets. If you were to watch a Chinese movie about a Chinese war where the Chinese are fighting another country, for example, the battle at Lake Chongjin was a genuine fight during the Korean War. It is a matter of fact that the Chinese were poorly equipped and they used human wave formations. In other words, they would send wave after wave of their infantrymen towards UN positions and hoping that after a while the UN would simply run out of ammunition and then they could swarm over the defensive perimeter. An absolutely terrible and cynical way to use huge mobs of infantry. Sometimes it worked. It didn't always. If you've ever heard of the Claymore mine, which was used extensively in Vietnam, that was invented in the Korean War, where it legendarily had on it front toward enemy. It's a sort of curved mine, which rather than you stick in the ground, you stick in front of you. So it's like a plate facing the direction of the enemy. And then when you fire it, it detonates high explosives and spreads shrapnel and ball bearings like a one-use massive shotgun, which I think you can work out would cause terrible damage to rows upon rows of infantry armed with nothing other than winter gear, which would have no protection against such things. So with that in mind, that's the reality of China in Korean War. Do you see that in the Battle of Lake Chongjin, which also had a sequel? It was one of the biggest hits of 2022, and it's one of the biggest hits of 2023, the sequel. Hundreds of millions of dollars made, almost all of it from China. But if you watch it tonally, it's the same as the Green Berets. The local population are the most hero-y he heroes in Heroville, and the enemy are the most villainous villains since villainy was ever existed. And it's just cartoonish, and there's no criticism whatsoever about Chinese tactics, Chinese forces, and I'm not doubting the bravery of these men. They were being intimidated by commissars in their rear lines, and they had to run, not necessarily even with a weapon, towards UN positions in the Korean War. That does take a huge amount of bravery. But to make it look like they had all the equipment and everything else, and in essence it was the love of the motherland of China that kept them safe, and that's what motivated them, oh please. And it's the same in these other countries. I've done a whole episode on RRR. And as one critic said, if you're getting your history from an action movie, you're doing it wrong. And I think that's the most polite way of saying that this is a staggeringly xenophobic take on the British Empire in India. Again, I'm not going to deny that there were outrages by the British Empire, but these two men, neither of which actually met both of which were killed in gun battles with local police forces, not white guys. Everything you see in the movie didn't happen. The fact that these two almost godlike superheroes have the names of actual historical figures who happened to live at the time of the Raj, that is the only history you can get from it. But it was a massive hit, not just in India, but around the world, because it's a great goodies versus baddies movie. And it plays exactly to 
the Hindu nationalist ideology of the current government. Everybody's happy except historians and, I'm going to say, British people, because if you watch it and you're British, there'll be a little part of you thinking, good lord, were we the Nazis? And no, we weren't the Nazis in India. So every country is allowed to be proud of their past. Every country uses this at times as a kind of weapon to get people to feel better about the current situation. A lot of this stuff is, in essence, saying, you think it's bad now? Look how bad it was in the past, and look how brave these people were getting through these tough times. So the Green Berets couldn't be made today in America. Western audiences just would not accept it, and yet it is being made today in other more autocratic countries. The trigger for this, the trailer that Teresa showed me, was actually a Turkish movie. And again, I'm not going to go into all of this. Turkish-made movie about Turks in a medieval battle. Now, if you know the history, like I do, you know the Turks at that point were pagan, like the Mongols, like the Huns. They came from the Eurasian steppes. They had shamanistic religious beliefs. The Turks eventually in brackets, went native because they ruled cultures in the Middle East, they became Muslim. And yet what's in this movie when all the Turks were pagan? It's all about how Allah will protect and Allah will defeat the Christians. And no, they couldn't possibly have thought that way in that time. But obviously today, Turkey has a Muslim government and therefore that's the message they want to portray. The, did you not know the Turks have always been Muslim? No, there is historical evidence to prove they haven't been. And all these books from like 50 years ago, which were telling the truth in all these countries, are now in essence being taken away, are either not being published anymore or actively being taken off the shelves so a new narrative can be used. So I do encourage you, I don't want you to start thinking about this like conspiracy theories. Again, History can be used as a weapon in that area as well. It's like, why has nobody talked about this thing? So therefore, nobody's been talking about it. It must be real, and it's a conspiracy to suppress it. Or it never happened. For extreme and unusual ideas, you need extreme and unusual evidence. Thank you very much. And just your hunch, or I read a book, or I watched a thing on TikTok isn't counted as a primary source in history be careful. And this is the thing. Free social media, again, governments or main TV channels had a certain care that they had to give to the, the people of their countries. You still see this with the BBC. When they make a documentary, they try and show it from all sides. They are reasonable. They're trying to be unbiased. They're certainly not being sensationalist. But on social media, those norms don't apply. The more reasonable, I guess this is why this one's called history as a weapon, because I'm showing you how it is being used as a weapon, but it's a better name for a podcast than it's complicated, because that's going to get less clicks than history as a weapon. But hopefully you will agree that I'm not being sensationalist here. 
But if I am a YouTuber trying to talk about a certain topic, I want the juiciest, most extreme, sexiest, most violent version of the thing because that's going to get me more hits. So just be careful. There have been a number of times I am closely following the Ukraine war and I've watched lots of different sources. And if I hear something that I like, I think, well, maybe that's too good to be true. So I check some of the other sources. And only when I get several corroborations do I start thinking, okay, that probably did happen then in that situation. But there is obviously biases on, on both sides. Interestingly, I find the Russian stuff almost unwatchable. It is so unbelievably far away from reality. I'm like, I can only talk about the English language stuff. That it's like, who are you kidding? This is, who's consuming this that actually thinks this? Now, obviously, the Ukraine stuff is just as biased. But interestingly, they use better sources. Really, with the Russian stuff, it's, it's a case of a journalist saying, trust me, I'm me, and I'm telling you we're doing brilliantly in this area here with some cool footage. A lot of it not from the front lines, which is always suspicious. With the Ukrainians, by comparison, they'll say, it's been a good day today. Well, of course you're going to say that if you're destroying Russian equipment. But they will then use something like Oryx. If you don't know what that is, Oryx is a Netherlands-based database which collects photos and then geolocates them. So this can't just be wreckage of a tank in Sheffield, England. They have to be able to work out if this is a tank in a field, this field has to be in Ukraine, and then we can confirm it's a real kill. And you might end up getting three different photos of the same tank. So again, they will geolocate them to work out, is this different angles of the same thing, or is this definitely a separate one? What it means is, without photographic evidence, that thing was never destroyed. So it's always on the more modest side of things. But there is one particular Ukrainian blogger that always sources Oryx, and Oryx is the most neutral example we've got. And you've got a very dry list of the equipment that has been confirmed, destroyed, or captured, or whatever. And therefore, I'm more likely to believe that than just take it for granted. It's me on the front line from the Russian side of things. But again, I still want, if there's certain things happening, I want several different sources to corroborate it. And it is interesting that the smaller skirmishes never get picked up by CNN or BBC. But if you get one small skirmish that causes a lot of excitement, for example, on Ukrainian Independence Day, they actually landed a bunch of Marines on the Crimean Peninsula. The first thing I heard that through was through one of these Ukrainian sources. But then very quickly, it was picked up by both the BBC and CNN. It's like, well, obviously that happened. This isn't just people pretending to do it in a swimming pool or something like that. That's just an example online, but be careful of people's biases. And on the point I just said, sometimes you hear a story and you want it to be true, but wanting something to be true doesn't make it actually so. Why are they saying this? Is there any evidence presented? Can you check that evidence? All these things, and this is something which I said when I left university and wanted to get a proper job, you get asked, so what life skills did you learn from your degree? Now, really, the life skill I learned from my degree was being able to dig small holes and tell you what was in it. Not very useful. But one of the things you do have to do is read several different historical records to try and come up with what actually happened on balance. Or sometimes you're faced with a problem of it's just one line in one chronicle. 
Is that chronicle biased? Are they telling the truth? Do they just make it up completely? Sometimes you just have to say, the evidence is thin, but this is the only bit we've got on it. Sometimes you get it supported by archaeological finds. Sometimes you get it contradicted by archaeological finds. Oh, it's complicated. As I said, is almost like the slogan for history and archaeology. And therefore, if somebody's telling you that it isn't complicated, that's the first warning sign. And again, be aware we all have our biases. Going back to World War II for a moment, the reason why it is so often used is because everybody agrees the Nazis are bad. If you're one of the few people who think they're not bad, then that's on you. I'm going to just leave that there. But that's why there are so many films like that. It's uncomplicated in terms of the morality. It's much harder if you're doing something like the English Civil War or the Battle of Agincourt, etc. What right does an English army have to be on a French field in near Agincourt, the small little village on the floodplain of the Somme River? You know, the Somme, as in about 400 years, 500 years later, the British will be back there fighting again. I digress. So I'm going to ask you to be careful. That's the main thing to take from this. I would love to get your thoughts. If you ever want to sort of check something with me, Jim, do you know anything about this story? I would like to know more. I'm happy to help you. I'm at Jim Daducci on Twitter, X, whatever Elon wants to call it this week, etc. I'm on there. I answer things there. I'm at Jim Daducci there. Look, if you are listening to this for the first time, please click subscribe. Please give us a review. It all helps. We're slowly growing our numbers. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much, by the way. Tell somebody. I, on Twitter, I do tweet out what the todays. I do two a week, by the way, people. Do watch my tweets because it tell you what the new one is. And if you could please retweet that to your followers, that would be great. And I would really appreciate that. But in the meantime, just be aware, history should not be used as a weapon. It should never be used to browbeat a people. Because if something bad happened 200 years ago, then everybody's dead. I'm sorry that your ancestors were treated badly by this other country, but those people in and of themselves are not intrinsically evil. It does lead down the road of things like reparations and apologies. That's, I'm going to say, in the same category. We won't normalize relations with you till we get an apology. Okay, we're sorry. How does that help? Or we want money. That is a huge slippery slope. And it gets it gets to the point where people start saying, oh, well, I definitely deserve compensation. But that other idea over there, that's just ridiculous. How can you possibly want money over there? Well, the answer is who doesn't want free money? If we are going to do reparations for imperialism or slavery or something like that, there can be no doubt that we can apologize for certain things. But also, again, let's put it into context. 200 years ago, name a civilization that didn't aspire to have some kind of empire of some description. The Aztecs weren't a people. It wasn't the Aztec Empire. It was the Incan Empire. China had an empire. Russia, empire. Ottoman Empire. It isn't just all white guys causing empires and grabbing land. That's worth remembering. When it comes to reparation, where, who do we start with and who do we end with? Every group thinks that they get to go first. Well, if we're, we're going to do it as the most recent in time, well, only Germany owes a lot of Jewish families a lot of money for the Holocaust. And that happened way after slavery was abolished. Or if we're going to start the other way around and start with the people 
beginning of history and then slowly moved through, well, Italy owes the rest of Europe a lot of money because of the Roman Empire, all the conquests, death, destruction, and enslavement of local peoples. So if you are sitting there going, oh, come on, Jan, what about this? What about, how could you possibly? It doesn't matter because the people who are actually affected by this are already dead. Now, when history is used as a weapon to explain a current situation, that is the point of history, and that is the correct use of history. Why is my society like this today? History can give you an answer. It may not be an answer that you like, and it doesn't, shouldn't, lead to you going, because something bad happened 200 years ago, I now want recompense from the government. That's a very nice idea that doesn't solve any problems. Using an exaggeration, if you look at one of the Caribbean islands, let's pick Jamaica, which the, basically the whole population was there because of slavery at some point in their lives. Well, if we gave every single person $10,000, that's not enough to really say sorry for generations of slavery, right? Okay, so let's give everybody a million dollars. Well, if you did that, you'd have rampant inflation. Everybody would want to buy the nice beach house and everybody's got a million dollars, all that happens is that beach house just instantly becomes two million and somebody rich will still buy it rather than just the everyman in this situation. It's one of these things where there is no harm in looking at the mistakes of your country, your society in the past and learn from them, make a better, more equitable society moving forwards. But just handing out cash or saying sorry to a group of people who feel aggrieved it only makes the situation worse, in my experience, and in terms of the evidence that actually happened. The, the apology wasn't sincere enough, or it's just words, now we need to see actions, and so on and so forth. This is why I'm saying it's like a slippery slope. And more importantly, we need to understand that the people of 200 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, just thought and acted in a very different way to society today. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.